acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Greg, check this out. I learned something. I learned a lot working with you, but this one kind of took me back. Did you know that the cops don't have to find any drugs on you for you to be convicted and in prison for a drug crime? Clint, what are you talking about? This call is from a federal prison. You will not be charged for this call. We can say pretty confidently that at any point in time, there are over 40,000 people incarcerated for cannabis in this country. Seattle Police with search warrant! Open the door! I mean, we have clients who are serving life without the possibility of parole for selling $20 worth of weed. That's crazy. This call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. You may begin speaking now. The Gulf Task Force came to my house and raided my house. <laughs> And uh, told me I was being charged with conspiracy to distribute marijuana. And uh, they didn't find any guns, they didn't find any drugs, they didn't find any money. But they still arrested me and they told me that I was being charged for conspiracy to distribute uh, 2,200 pounds of marijuana with a maximum sentence of life. And this is solely based off somebody else, just what they say. Yeah, and they can do that without any drugs on the table. They without can do any that. drugs, right. of course, yeah. yes, they can do that. And I'm a prime example of that. Hey, this is Clayton English. This is Greg Glaude. And this is the War on Drugs. 
Greg, what's going on? Not much, Clayton. How you doing? Today? I'm good, man. We got a little bit of a special episode today, yep. right? A little bit longer than the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, two interviews: Natalie Papillon with the Last Prisoner Project, and uh, Edwin Rubis, who's uh, incarcerated right now. Where? Talladega. Okay. Talladega, in Alabama, at a federal penitentiary. Right out there. Yeah, and I, I, I can't wait for people to hear it because. This conversation was a, it was a ride. It, yeah. it made me feel a lot of different feelings, uh, anger, uh, upset, and you know, uh, he really kind of just put you in his shoes. And I don't think we think about it. This is the first interview that we've had where we talked to somebody that's currently, yeah, in prison and living with it. Every yeah, day. and and you know, a lot of the things that you told me as we've started this podcast, I just saw firsthand in this interview right uh how we criminalize addiction yeah how people get wrapped up in this how you get the trial going to trial exercising your constitutional rights going to trial yep how that damages you yep. the crazy sentences the problems in prison how you get back i mean it really like yeah. start to finish like shows every little problem yeah. that you have in the system and and it's it's so much bigger than anything you could imagine like once you once i found out that the people that really need to be locked up can give up lesser people and get less time that that's feels like the complete opposite of what our legal system is designed to do right but in actuality is perfectly designed to do just that exactly because again it's not about the drugs right yeah and, and and edwin's case got on our radar from you know, the last prisoner project when we were talking to them and, and Natalie Papillon, um, who works over there. And, you know, it's an organization that does, you know, trying to help individuals that are currently incarcerated for marijuana offenses to be able to get released and, you know, successfully enter society. Yeah. You see what she you see what she's fighting for. Isn't just something on paper or just this this is real people getting affected by these things. Yeah, and like, the 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 people is designed to like the cartel is not scared, or the people in charge are not scared. I actually, you know, they they enjoy this. They like it, yeah, because there it's, needs to be a scalp, right? Yeah, like if you're you a, got you yeah. got these numbers pinned to this person who didn't have a fraction of what we had to do with it, and they get to take the brunt, and we get to keep operating. Yeah. Perfect. Everybody wins yeah. as far as the corrupt. <laughs> bullshit <laughs> yeah no one loves mandatory minimums and conspiracy charges more than el chapo and yeah. all these guys i mean who who loved prohibition more than al capone Come on. yeah so I'm, I'm i'm really excited for you all to listen to this we have an amazing conversation with natalie and then we, we speak with edwin and um yeah we'll, we'll, let's i think we're ready to get into it yeah absolutely natalie how you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited about this. Thanks for having um, me. Um man, we're so excited to have yeah. you here. Uh doing the Lord's work. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing you're doing what needs to be done. I mean, I think I think there's so many people that have been thrown away in the system for such a small infraction and an infraction that in most places is legal or close to legal now. So um can you 
start us off with just the scale of the problem and the injustice when it comes to marijuana arrest and yeah. who would affect? Yeah, I think let's start from this misconception that now that many states have either liberalized their cannabis laws or outright legalized adult use cannabis, um, no one's being arrested, no one's being incarcerated for possession or distribution, and everyone who was formerly incarcerated has been sort of let free. The prison gates have opened. Um, that is Definitely not true. But we have done a lot of internal research at Last Prisoner Project, and we can say with, you know, pretty pretty confidently that at any point in time, there are over 40,000 people incarcerated for cannabis in this country, which is, you know, a ton of people, especially when you consider the fact that 20 states have legalized for adult use and, you know, dozens more have decriminalized the plant. So we're seeing um, an injustice and a hypocrisy um, where many people are minting millions of dollars off of selling cannabis in their states. You know, they're buying pot stocks um, mm -hmm. while others are being sentenced to not just, you know, a few days, weeks, months in, in prison um, for even something as simple as marijuana possession. I mean, we have clients who are serving life without the possibility of parole for selling $20 worth of weed. And that's crazy. Whenever I tell people, they assume I'm I'm making things up or being hyperbolic. But I was, it's, unfortunately, it's true. And how does that happen? You know, this one man I'm thinking about, Mr. Kevin Allen, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole um, because he was considered under Louisiana state law a habitual offender. Now, that seems really scary. And, okay, habitual offender, like, terrorizing our communities, whatnot. Um, he had you know, four previous arrests, and they were all for drug possession, all nonviolent. Um, so we have these incredibly draconian laws on the books. Um, we have judges and, and a judicial system that doesn't, right. um, isn't empowered to look at the full facts of the case. You know, they have to look at mandatory minimums. They have to look at habitual offender laws. And that leaves you um, in a situation where we have people serving life for $20 worth a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. And like marijuana kind of just Seals like it gets like thrown under the rug, but it is one of the biggest drivers of not only just, you know, criminal justice contacts through arrest, but also incarceration. Yeah, you touched on a really great point. So throughout sort of the recent history in the U.S., marijuana law enforcement has ebbed and flows. But the 1990s and, you know, at the very beginning of the 90s, we start to see a huge ramping up of marijuana related arrests. So, you know, to illustrate that in 1991, there were 88,000 marijuana arrests across the country. In 2002, uh, we're seeing uh, 730,000 marijuana arrests. So why did that happen? One is sort of the cratering of crime rates post the 1980s and you know, what police have to do with those bloated budgets and, and how they have to utilize them and how they're incentivized to utilize them. And they do that by doing the easiest thing they can do is start picking people up on the street for weed, right? We also have this mythology start in the 1990s around the youthful sort of marijuana menace, right? So we have this idea that predominantly young black men um, may have either been in car already are already incarcerated for crack or um, you know are not using crack or distributing crack as much as they they might have been in the 1980s and they're instead turning to marijuana um, it's not just contained to the inner cities um, their sort of predilection for for marijuana use is actually spreading into the suburbs and I'm going to be totally blunt 
no pun intended, um, you know, infecting white suburban youth. And this is a crisis and we need to protect the children. And in order to protect the children, we need to basically stop, stop, frisk and throw every young black man who might have a dime bag on them into prison. Yeah. So you, you touched on something and, and it's something that I've worked with quite a bit, you know, as states have attempted to either decriminalize or legalize um, marijuana. Um, you know, you sometimes get sometimes almost every time uh, pushback from law enforcement and what I've noticed is like it's not necessarily the prohibition of the drug itself. It's what comes around with it and some of the collateral issues. So it's like, well, now we're going to lose this thing that we have in our back pocket. If we smell marijuana, are you or we can do a stop and frisk on you and have a dime bag? If it's legal, those go away. Can you kind of touch on like some of the other collateral aspects of like what non-legalization looks like in those states and how that allows for government control over individuals through that and what they're losing from a legalization standpoint, the government. A hundred percent. So you mentioned one thing about the odor of marijuana. So that's obviously been the case. That's been the basis for so many pretextual stops um, across the country. When it becomes legalized and if it's legalized in the right way, police use that sort of investigative tool. I, I don't have a lot of empathy for law enforcement departments who say they basically need to skirt the Constitution in order to do their job, if I'm being totally candid. I think if you can't do your job and protect public safety without stopping a bunch of people for smoking weed, then you're probably in the, in the wrong line of work. And um, oftentimes this, this stuff can turn deadly. I don't know if you remember the story of Philando Castile, but the cop who sort of approached yeah. him said he smelled marijuana and he said that smell made him fear for his life. Now, this is a cop, you know, a young cop in uh, Minnesota that doesn't really hold water for me. But, you know, you can say that because it's illegal. And, you know, there have been so many court cases that say it's the you know basis for pretextual stops. And people can can get away with approaching people and, and killing people because of that marijuana impetus. That's just so crazy. Like, if you can smell like cocaine, then you are a kingpin. You are a, car, you're, you're a cartel <laughs> boss. You are Scarface. But weed is one of the only things, like, yeah, just a small amount. And like you said, people have lost their life. Like, for him to say he was, he was fearful because of the smell of marijuana, it goes back to kind of the racial tones that it has you're fearful because they've associated marijuana with black people to make you fearful yeah um it's it's crazy when you see the numbers as they just kind of stay in these horrible you know hundreds of thousands of people still getting arrested for marijuana offenses mainly possession only and and still going on in 2020 when we're 2022 now and so i know in some states they'll legalize it but they don't make uh, provisions to like make for retroactive sentencing for people that are in behind bars or if you have a criminal record for something that's legal now to like seal that or expunge it. So can you talk about some of the complications that we see within the criminal justice system now as we move to legal um, that are still hindering people that were caught up in it prior to the legalization? Yes. So oftentimes um, activists or policymakers will put forth a legalization proposal. They'll spend a lot of time thinking about tax rates, a lot of um, time thinking about like what agency should be sort of the regulatory body governing cannabis operations. And they rarely ever think about, okay, what happens to the people who either are still incarcerated or the people who um, were previously incarcerated and have this sort of black mark on their records. And so consumers, the general public think, okay, it's legal now, everyone goes free. Whereas 
if you don't actually write that explicitly and, and do it in a smart way into the law, people are still remaining in prison. So they are in prison while they are mm. reading magazines that talk about the latest pot billionaire, right? Can you imagine what that would feel like? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I we have constituents who say, I was serving a 10-year sentence and I turned on the TV while I was in jail and I saw you know, a conversation on the local news station about like pot moms and these like women right. um, making millions of dollars selling selling weed to like rich Beverly Hills moms. Um, so there are a lot of issues with our criminal legal system. I think this is the mo- one of the most obvious examples of just the hypocrisy um, and sort of the two s- systems of justice, uh, according to like if you're if you're white, wealthy, and well connected, versus if you're, you know, black or brown or low income, you're treated quite differently, um, in a very literal sense. With the with the two systems of justice, a lot of times for um, a lot of people that I'm around, sometimes it just feels hopeless. Like what can be done? Like I like to be a solution based person. What needs to be done? What can be done at a state and federal level? What's some things that people should be looking towards or pushing for in their community to at least try to balance this out? No, I, I'm, I want to be solution oriented as well. I think, you know, this is sort of table stakes. We need to have federal decriminalization and ideally federal legalization, um, both to sort of stop the criminalization of cannabis that's happening on the federal level. Now, we're not seeing huge numbers of people sentenced for marijuana on the federal level, but, you know, a thousand a year. Um, so we need to stop that, obviously. And that's something we can do just by a simple act of Congress. But also because federal decriminalization will set a tone, um, you know, for other states who have yet to decriminalize or legalize, um, it will help uh, sort of re it'll help policymakers rethink how they're attributing and how they're distributing those, you know, burn grants, those federal funds. So we can actually fund police to do work that makes our community safer as opposed to racking up marijuana arrest. Um, Federal legalization decriminalization is also really important because it will um, lessen a lot of those taxes, a lot of those expenses and capital expenditures happening for state regulated businesses. So they can, um, and that's going to incentivize people to move from the black or gray market into the regulated market and all of the good things that come along with that. You know, that's an increase to public health, public safety. Um, That's something that's really, really important. We don't have like, like, people don't make moonshine anymore. Like we don't have, right. boot, we don't have bootleggers. And I think that's a really great thing. Um, but I don't know if you've been to Tennessee lately. <laughs> you know, I will say my family is from Tennessee and they have been known to brew a bat, but they have like, we now have like craft moonshiners, right? The vast yeah, majority yeah. Right, of, right. of alcohol sales are, are happening in a way where you can, um, where you can sort of track them, where you can make sure that underage folks aren't getting, you know, their hands on anything shouldn't be, um, where you can make sure that things are tested and regulated and so forth and so on. Just it's a win for everything, um, for everyone. And that only really happens when there's federal legalization. So, you know, it's really hard to get this Congress to agree upon anything. But I will say the vast majority of Americans, Republicans, independents, Democrats support federal legalization and they support allowing the states to do what they wish when it comes to regulating cannabis commerce within their boundaries. And so we need to put pressure on Congress to sort of heed, you know, be responsive to the people you you seek to represent or you're claiming to represent and do this. And then in states that have yet to legalize, make sure that you're pressuring your state lawmakers to do that, right? Um 
and not only legalize, but do it in a smart way. Like think about the long-term implications of the policy and make sure you're prioritizing those criminal justice reforms. And, you know, I focus a lot on the criminal justice aspects of this issue, but there are also real like medical and public health implications yeah. to this, right? So because cannabis is a schedule one drug, uh, which is a whole other story. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole, it's a wild story. <laughs> right. No one can do any, scientists can't do any research, right? Or lest right. they be arrested. So we don't yeah. actually know as much as we should know about this substance that half of American adults will consume in their lifetime, yeah. right? And yeah. that's, you know, in a word, a little problematic. You know, some you know, Israel's doing a lot of interesting research. There's some European countries who are doing interesting research. But there's obviously some medical efficacy to c cannabis consumption. But we're not able to maximize that or uh, because we're the schedule one designation means no one can do research. Yeah. Cocaine, a yeah. schedule two drug. Right. Marijuana, schedule one right. drug. You can do more stuff with cocaine. From and, a, and, yeah. And that's crazy because the, the weed that they do test is that same weed that's been growing at the University of Ole Miss. Yeah. Since, and we've had so many leaps and bounds <laughs> with what weed is capable of doing now. I've seen that Mississippi weed. I've had it. <laughs> it is... It does not look pretty compared to what's out there now. And there's, yeah, so we don't even know what benefits there could be. And they're still finding more molecules, endocannabinoid system, all this stuff I'm yeah. learning. So, yeah. yeah, benefits, potential harms. Like right now, we're operating in this space of no knowledge. Um, and that's, that's going to have negative effects for everyone. That's what's up. So go to lastmersproject.org. Yes. Get active, like you said. Call your on local your local DAs, level, your seriously, on the local, yeah. on the state, and everybody got to push for the federal. Everyone, I mean, this should be sort of. Americans don't agree on anything; they do agree on legal weed. Let's make it happen, right? Yes, they need to know. They need to know. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. This is such an important topic, and I'm really grateful that you're spending time on it because it's something that a lot of people do not know about, and that's a shame. We got a couple bills to pay, but we'll be right back. Money, money, money. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, CEO and founder of Lava for Good Podcasts, home to Bone Valley, Wrongful Conviction, The War on Drugs, and many other great podcasts. Today, we're asking you, our listeners, to take part in a survey. Your feedback is going to help inform how we make podcasts in the future. Your complete and candid answers will help us continue to bring you more insightful and inspiring stories about important topics that impact us all. So please go to lavaforgood.com slash survey and participate today. Thank you for your support. The War on Drugs podcast is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest changemakers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems. Like many others who experience addiction, Scott Strode was using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. For him, it was childhood trauma. In his early 20s, Scott was invited into a boxing gym by a friend, and that's where he discovered the healing power of sport and community. In 2006, Scott founded The Phoenix, a free, sober, active community that uses the transformative power of sport to help people treat and heal from addiction. Scott Strode is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to drive solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and criminal justice. To learn more, visit standtogether.org.
on this call from Edwin Rubis. Yeah. Uh, get to hear his story, which is one of the casualties of the drug war. Yeah. So um, for those of you who don't know, Edwin Rubis um, is, you know, right now uh, in federal prison uh, for allegedly uh, trafficking marijuana uh, from the border to Houston um, on conspiracy. No drugs were ever found at his home. It was just people that were arrested said that he had been transporting drugs from. Okay. This call is from a federal prison. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from Edwin Rubis. This call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. To accept this call, press 5. To block this call and all future calls, press 7. To reject this call, hang up now. You may begin speaking now. Hello? Hello? Hi, Edwin. How you doing? Doing well. Hey, How are you? How you doing, man? I'm doing. I'm doing okay, despite the circumstances. Yeah. Yes. Right, right. This is Clayton English and Greg Glaude, and you know, thank you for calling into the War on Drugs podcast. Yes, yes, no problem. Yes, I want to thank you all for the opportunity to be able to speak on your platform. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know we we're short on time too, so we'll, we'll get into it. So, you know, why don't we just start from kind of the beginning? Um, you know how this all occurred and transpired, you know, going a little beforehand and what the things that you're going through. Um, so just kind of tell your story and then we can get into everything else. Okay. Well, yeah. basically, uh, the Gulf Task Force uh, came to my house and raided my house and uh, told me I was being charged with conspiracy to distribute marijuana. And, and right, uh, and they found nothing wow. at your house, right? Yeah, I mean, take a, yes, yeah, yes. When they came that, to my yeah. house, when they came to my house and basically it was early in the morning and uh, they... Um, came and me on the floor, um, ransacked the house from top to bottom. Uh, my son was traumatized by the whole event, of course. Yes. My pregnant wife was confused and just sat there. They didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on at first until I was ex they explained to me what the reason why, you know, that was happening. And uh, they didn't find any guns. They didn't find any drugs. They didn't find any money, you know. And, but they still arrested me, and they still took me down to the federal building, you know, um, downtown Houston. And they told me the charges, and they took me to court, and I was arraigned. And then they told me that I was being charged for a conspiracy to distribute uh, 2,200 pounds of marijuana with a maximum sentence of life. Jeez. And I couldn't really yeah. believe, um, you know, what I was being charged with. And I said, you know, I was shocked. And I asked, I said, well, where does this derive from, you know? And basically, they told me that people... This call is from a federal prison. ...the Drug Enforcement Agency, and that they were cooperating with the government. They were cooperating with the government, and I'd given them my name, and were saying that I was involved with them, you know, for selling marijuana. And this is solely based off somebody else, just what they yeah, say. Uh, yeah, and basically, the conspiracy laws worked that way. I had to learn that the hard way, of course, and after so many years of being in prison, yeah. I've come to understand that if there's an agreement between two people that basically um, say or agree that someone else has been a participant in, a, in an illegal venture or, or illegal transaction of drugs, then that person can be arrested, um, basically with the same charges that those two are agreeing that you had something to do with. Yeah, and they can do that yeah. without yes. any drugs on the table. They without can do any that. drugs, right. of course, yeah. yes, they can do that. And I'm a prime example of that. And at that time, I didn't really know anyone. 
I had right. lost contact with the people that I had been right. selling drugs with. You know, so it was very difficult for me to say, okay, well, this Joe Blow here, you know, he's selling drugs, or, uh, you know, uh, this other guy, John, you know, he's also saying, I couldn't say that. I mean, there was no way that I could have given him any type of information, even if I wanted to. So what ended up happening is in my ignorance, you know, I decided to go to trials. And that was the worst decision that I could have made in my life. You know, I didn't know what the ramifications were going to be. Uh, my attorney basically didn't present any type of um, witnesses on the witness stand. Uh, he told me not to testify. Um, there wasn't any evidence that I shown, uh, you know, uh, to try to demonstrate my innocence. Yeah, no physical but evidence. Yes, nothing was found. I mean, yes, yeah, no, nothing yeah. was found. No, yeah. of course not. And I they, mean, if anything would have been found, then I guess, uh, again, you have to understand that I was ignorant to the law. I was 28, 29 years old. And, I mean, I had... I, there was no way I could, I mean, I don't know how to um, basically believe that they could find me guilty or that they could have said, okay, well, uh, we're going to convict you uh, based on, on word of mouth. And I didn't understand that. But again, I had to learn that the hard way, and I have learned that the hard way. But most people think in the judicial system, if they don't have any evidence, what are they going to hold against me? And, you know, you were just operating under the assumption that I think most people have, that, yeah. you know, most Americans have. And so, really, your only way out of the situation was for you to give somebody else up and continue this exactly. cycle. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And I couldn't. I mean, even if I wanted to. I mean, yeah. again, the, the people, the leaders of the conspiracy, the leaders in my case, I wasn't a leader. The leaders in my case basically had been arrested, and other, among others, and they... This call is from a federal prison. ...operating in trying, you know, to try to get their sentence reduced. So, here I come. You know, I'm arrested. I'm not a leader of the, of the conspiracy or the, or, the, or the case, and you know, and I'm trying to prove my innocence. So the government uses all the testimony from them to basically label me as the guy that was in charge when I wasn't, and they know that. And even in my case, if you read the transcripts of my situation, I mean, on my case and my trial, you're gonna uh, basically easily come to understand that that's the case, you know, that I wasn't a leader. And, and it was kind of ironic now is that the leaders of the organization or the leaders of the of my case, in my case, have been released, every single right. one of them. You know, the actual people that were doing this whole thing, making the connections, making the deals, right. doing whatever else, intimidating you, are able to walk free because they have, you know, higher exactly. paid attorneys, they understand what's going on, and they had information to flip on people that were actually less culpable in this whole thing. I mean... Right. Yes, because of the reason that I couldn't cooperate with them and I couldn't flip, you know, all the, you know, I couldn't flip and snitch on other people. And that's one of the main reasons why, you know, I received such a harsh sentence. You know, I proceeded to trial and, you know, they gave me every single type of enhancements that they could have gave me. They gave me obstruction of justice. They gave me leadership role. They gave me a gun that didn't exist because I was never found with any type of weapons. But people testified and they said oh yes he yeah he, he had a he had a gun sometimes you yeah know? and that's and they'll use all of that information to basically enhance your sentence yeah it's yeah. incredible you know by now i have already done you know over 24 years and two months to the day i have been in prison you know serving this uh non-violent uh, cannabis off you know for this uh, non-violent cannabis offense Wow. And I still have 10 years left to go. Yeah. But it doesn't defeat me, you know, because for the simple fact is, you know, yes, I mean, when I first came into uh, prison, I was extremely depressed. And uh, I was distraught. 
and I still struggling with drug addiction. And, you know, the demons that I was dealing out in the streets, I was still dealing with them in prison. And to the point that it became very unbearable. You know, there was a time, you know, the first year and a half, two years was extremely difficult that I even tried to commit suicide. You know, I tried to take my own life. I couldn't face the fact that I was looking, you know, uh, uh, to my release date that was going to be 35 years later. I mean, my mother was uh, suffering, you know, and my children, my ex-wife, were left out on the streets. I mean, it was it was horrible. I mean, and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, all I could do was call, uh, you know, them on the phone for 15 minutes, just as I'm doing that, <laughs> just as I'm doing that right now, you know, and talk to them and didn't really do much for them. Yeah, and I mean, and this all costs significant money. You know, I work in criminal justice policy, so I'm aware, you know, of you know commissary items. It's the phone calls. It's the video chats. It's emails they call them stamps where you have to buy stamps just to send an email if you want to send an attachment to an email that's another stamp and so you know i i you know we read about how you were trying to you know you're trying to better yourself in there and you're trying to go through college courses and all these uh different things but you had to essentially choose between you know eating sometimes um or sending an email or um getting tuition books and things like that can you talk a little bit about some of those kind of struggles that you've had with that whole area of the the prison system and I'm sorry, I'm just I'm about to break, down, I'm break down crying because, you know, it's just, it's so hard. You know, the times that I have found myself going through that and, and I had to make a choice, you know, to either, you know, purchase some things or, you know, or purchase my college books. And, but again, I haven't given up, you know, I, I haven't allowed my circumstances to defeat me. Um, you know, I have tried, you know, through my faith, and my perseverance to try to make something of myself, you know, despite being behind prison walls. Edwin, what is, we got people listening here. What is something we can do to help? Or what is something that people listening at home can do to help in any capacity? The thing that I request for people is to sponsor me. Uh, what I request is for people to raise, up a, raise a voice to basically to say enough is enough. Why are you keeping this man behind prison bars when this man has been truly rehabilitated? This man has accomplished more than anyone could accomplish under those dire conditions. That's what I want people to basically know. This call is from a federal prison. I mean, it's unfair. I mean, it's just, I mean, people don't really have a clear picture of what a prisoner actually goes through behind the fence. And, you know, we don't, of course, we have different programs that show up the, in the violent, um, you know, notion or angle of what takes place behind prison walls that, you know, they never really demonstrate the emotional turmoil, the anguish and the mental anguish that a prisoner goes through when he's being deprived of having that affection of hugging their loved ones, right. of having that social connection with the people that he loves. You know, those are the things that they don't demonstrate. And those are the things that I believe affects a lot of people behind prison walls. You know, you have people in here suffering from PTSD. You have people uh, here taking medication. And, you know, you have people here breaking down sometimes and going to suicide watch. That happened to me when I first came into prison. And and like I said, I wanted to take my own life. I just couldn't fathom the notion that I was going to be in prison for 40 years, and it was just insane. And that's probably compounded by the fact that you're innocent 
for for most of the things, the gun and and the hearsay, and they caught you with no evidence. So, or you're yeah. you're do, you did something that other people are making millions of dollars off of right now. It's an unjust system to say the least. Is there any way? Uh, would you, do you want people to contact you or email? Or I don't know how that. Yeah. Works. Any any other ways that yeah we can go out or anything you'd like to yeah say before we um we go here? Yes. Um. There is um. There is an email address that my brothers are ministers, and it's called uh, Edwin Rubies at AOL.com. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll plug that in uh, in our podcast link yes. and everything else. We'll, we'll put that in there, and so people can. This call is from a federal prison. Really, greatly appreciate you giving me the time to be able to speak with you all. No, thank you. Uh, it, means, it means a lot, you know. And one last thing that I would like to say, if you will allow me to. Yes, please. Is that. The fact that, you know, when I communicate with people, when I speak to people over the phone as I'm speaking to you right now, to me, that is oxygen to my lungs. That is life-giving to me because I come to think of it as a way of knowing that there's a world for me out there waiting on me and that I'm not just here in prison and that this is my life because you have to understand the perception of living behind prison walls for almost 25 years and not knowing when you're going to be able to see society again. You know, by the time I get out, I'm going to be 63 years old if I have to do the remaining of my sentence. And by that time, I would have spent 34 years in prison for a nonviolent cannabis offense. And to me, that is uh, it's harsh. I mean, it's, it's inexplicable. So when I speak to people like you and I speak to other people, you know, from society, it gives me hope. And that is what keeps me going. It gives me faith to know that one day I would be able to speak to you personally out there in the streets. Well, yes. yeah, when, when that happens, yes. I'll, I'll be there because I, I would love to yeah, shake your hand and, and give you a hug for everything yeah, you're doing, man. you know, and hopefully, you know, we can get you home a little bit earlier um, with all the you know support that you're, you're getting out here. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, man. I'm, yeah, we see what you're doing, love what you're doing, and uh, we're gonna do everything we can to get the word out. And um, thank you. Is there anything thank else you. you would want to tell the people out there listening? Or I love each one of you. That's all I want to say. I love each one of you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank no, you. Thank Edwin. you so thank much, you. man. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. <laughs> We'll be right back with the War on Drugs podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) 
What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Wow. It's, um, it's, um, oh man, like, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was tough because you hear it, but you, it's different hearing it from somebody in there, being reminded that they're in there. And then, uh, yeah, at one point while he was talking, I just, I, I, I felt it. I could, I could see myself in that situation. Like, nobody would want to do any of those things he's describing for one to two years, let alone 24. Right. And like the hypocrisy of it all, like, you know, this morning where I'm getting ready to come over here to the studio to record and we're about to do this thing. And, you know, I see it's uh, like 940 and I'm like, oh, the, the market's open uh, yeah. for the stock markets. Like, let's see how much money I've already lost. And cannabis stocks, <sighs> I'm looking at them. And how crazy is that? That publicly traded entities right. um, profiting off of sales of legal marijuana in this country and Canada and all over the world. And then there's an individual there that's in federal prison for 40 years. And not looking at coming home till 2030. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a, it's, it's a lot. Um, 
so that's, you know, as we think that we're moving towards a, a more equitable system or legalizing marijuana is going to be, you know, everything's all good. There are still thousands of people like Edwin incarcerated at the state and federal level for things that are now completely legal. Right. Um, it's just wrong. And, and hopefully, you know, things can, things can change and, and folks like him can get home. Yeah. And quicker. with people like us and the people listening, maybe we can, you know, change the course. Yeah. I mean, again, call your Congress people, call the president's call the Department yeah. of Justice, like yeah. getting up support for this. I'm telling you, it does work um, and it can help. And so it's just a case that, um, you know, really, really impact me. I, I know, I know it's just impact both of us yeah. just talking to them. So I hope that comes through. Um, I hope you, I hope this drives you to want to do something more about this and get bills passed, get people like him home. And, and so, you know, we can kind of move forward and he can have a, a positive impact in our lives. I think he'd be a tremendous value to society. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Make sure you follow the War on Drugs podcast so you don't miss any new episodes or any of our quick fix bonus content. And we'll be right back next week with another episode of War on Drugs. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Executive producers for War on Drugs are Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. Senior producer is Michael Epstein. Editing by Nick Massetti and Michael Epstein. Associate producer and mix and mastering by Nick Massetti. Additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Anna McEntee. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Lava for Good. You can follow Greg on Twitter, that's me, at Greg Glaude, and Clayton on Instagram, at Clayton English. The War on Drugs is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. I'm your host, Greg Glaude. And I'm your host, Clayton English. And thanks for listening to the War on Drugs Podcast. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.